Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the tragic shooting in Kenosha last night, and then we're going to hear audio from John MacArthur. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, happy Monday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. We are grateful for those of you who do that. Ian Simpkins, happy Monday. It is like 150 degrees outside, but I hope you had a good weekend. I yeah I've not gone to my run today. Wise <laughs> move. <laughs> I I opened the door and I was like, nah, nope, I'm not doing it. Not gonna do it. I'm gonna go go do some cardio in the basement. My youngest daughter, she was like, hey dad, you want to go play tennis? And I was like, sure, let's go play tennis. And we went and we played. You know, probably played for a half hour. And then I just looked at her. I go, hey, I'll buy you Starbucks if we can leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. That's a, that's a dad win right there. We uh we went and sat and start sat outside of Starbucks. That was a uh, that was a huge win compared to running around in the in the sun. Uh, but yeah, we hope you all had a good weekend. And again, the podcast. Uh, I had two separate people this weekend. Man, tell me that they binged our podcast this weekend or really? over the last week. And how do you think I responded to them? <laughs> you did shock, shock, shock and awe is what I'm guessing. Yeah. But I, well, I was really happy, and they had uh, they said I, I've really enjoyed the way you guys are engaging with politics and other stuff, and so that's what we're doing. And one of the places you can do that it is at our Facebook page, mm-hmm. and I use that as a jumping off point here because uh, we posted an article uh, about that that shooting that happened yesterday in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, that if you haven't read the articles and you haven't seen the video, it is hard to watch. Yeah. Uh, but a man. Uh, somebody was videoing a man who uh, was part of a, uh, was he being arrested? I want to make sure I get this right. I'm not sure he's being arrested or he was just there. Uh, but the police were trying to get him to stop and he kept walking. And one of the policemen grabbed his shirt and shot him seven times on camera. And it was just horrific to watch. Uh, and I've been very interested that we put that up on our Facebook page right now. Uh, and it's heated. Uh, if you're not a part of our Facebook page, go there now because it is heated back and forth right now. And, uh, Ian, I don't know how else to ask it, but when I'm sure you saw it last night, news, Twitter, wherever else it might have been. Uh, first reaction thoughts as you've uh, read and seen this story. Well, I mean, some of the comments like you mentioned on the Facebook page are sort of the traditional, almost at this point, predictable camps, right? One camp is saying, uh, he shouldn't have walked away in the first place, right? Which uh, I would agree. Uh, then there's another camp that is let's let's wait until we see the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third camp is probably the the most that I landed. Like regardless of the full footage, and again, keeping in mind, yeah, he shouldn't shouldn't have walked away. That does not warrant seven shots to the back. That to me is what's tricky about this story. And the guy, I mean at least at the time that we're doing this is, is still alive. Miraculously right. uh, kids in the car. Uh, one eyewitness claimed that it was one of his kids birthdays. Ooh. There's all sorts of other perspectives here that even if the police officer feared for his life, right. Is, is seven shots like that ever warranted? Could, could there not be, let's say he was reaching for weapon in his car. Should the police officer not at least have an, enough training to not, I don't know the seven, 
yeah. To me, again, yeah. and you know, you and I are not we're not police officers, we're not lawyers. This is not a field of expertise uh, for either of us by any stretch. But there, are a lot of people making comments like, "Well, if they would just, you know, if people would just obey the the law and then you know listen to the cops, they'd they'd be safe." And I'm like, "Well, that it didn't really work for Brianna Taylor, right? She was in her bed. Like, there's certainly." other aspects to this where the the two-dimensional like man just listen to cops and everything goes well for you you're like right, that's not necessarily yeah. true though and i'm not saying that you know obviously not we had my my buddy kevin on the show a couple of weeks ago who's a police officer whom i i love and respect dearly like yeah i I, th- I think he's got an incredible head on his shoulders and a heart for jesus and justice and so it's hard to it's hard to weigh in at all to any aspect of the story without people assuming that you mean 10 other things, which is part of why it's probably so heated on our Facebook page right now. Right. But, uh, at the very least, just heartbreaking again. And, you know, and I know that like, this is the kind of stuff, like someone, a traffic stop goes successfully. Like that doesn't make headlines and that's not getting shared online. I, I, I fully understand that, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'd love to know how, how it kind of hit you when you, when you saw it. Yeah, it was interesting. So as you said, kids ages three, five and eight were in the car and the police union, just to give the story here at CNN, the police union says there's more to the story. And so, as you said, uh, there, there's a lot of different camps of people saying different things right now. Uh, when I first saw it, I actually was, uh, was really saddened by it, but also there was this almost numb, uh, this is going to sound odd, but there was this almost numb, like, you would think if you were watching video of a guy getting shot, I know if you've seen the video, it's kind of blocked by the door, but you know what's going on. Uh, you would think if you saw that, you would just be like up at night, not able to sleep, like horrified. And I I, I was actually struck by the, almost the normalcy of it. And that's a weird thing to say a little bit. But mm. um, yeah, but it was a really it's a disturbing story. And then not surprisingly, uh, there were. Um, there was some violence in, in the city of Kenosha, which we bring up uh Kenosha, especially it's within our listening audience here. Uh, there were, you know, um, not just protests, but, uh, some clashes last night, uh, not surprising. any. And I guess what I would say too is, uh, and I know we talk a lot about how, uh, you know, <laughs> as a white guy in the suburbs, this, this speaks to me having the privilege to say what I'm about to say. Uh, it was just a reminder again, that after everything with George Floyd and everything that, that this is going to be, an issue that uh, this is going to sound really basic to people. It's going to be an issue that's going to be around for a long time. And we're going to have to keep wrestling with, and obviously some people are going to have to wrestle with it much more personally and more than I will have to. Uh, But that's another thing that struck me. And again, I know for some people out there, you're going, well, obviously, but if I'm just being honest, that was one of the thoughts I had going, here we go again. Uh, We're going to have to keep having this conversation. Yeah. And I think that what's, tricky now is as you were mentioning to all these other reports are starting to come together and and one that i'm reading here on nbc is saying that he was actually in the process of de-escalating a domestic incident and then was tased and and all that was happening prior to you know him walking to his car and i I think again i would encourage you to go to the facebook page because some of the comments are really good carlos wrote that the police motto is to serve and protect there should not be any need to use live bullets in this situation guns were drawn before the man ever made it to his car, which, you know, other people have mentioned that, you know, the police officer had first kind of grabbed his shirt. Like, would, would that not in some way communicate a closeness of pr- proximity in order to stop him from getting to his car in the first place? 
they failed to serve and protect this man, no matter what the whole story is. This was excessive use of force. There needs to be a complete police training overhaul. If being a non-compliant black man is enough justification to be shot, there is a severe problem in how they are trained. And then a bunch mm-hmm. of people commented and said, yeah, that's actually, this is a really heartbreaking circumstance, but that's close to what I was going to write. And uh, again, either way, we'd love to know what you think. What camp would you kind of land in? How would you weigh in on the conversation that's happening on the Facebook page? We really would love to know uh, kind of how you are sitting with all this information. Absolutely. So as Ian said, that's at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. It reminds us uh, that there's a lot of work still to be done. And uh, with the conversation, we will continue to have here. Well, coming up next, John MacArthur has been in the news a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks. And we're going to listen to an extended interview that John MacArthur gave over the weekend. And then we're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks again for joining us. Hey, man, I, I saw on your, uh, I guess it would have been your Facebook, looked like your church gathered Saturday night, not for a service, not inside. Looked like you guys did like a, an outdoor worship gathering. And, and I'm seeing from uh, your Facebook page uh, that it was like water to a part soul for you. It sounds like it went really well. Yeah, we're calling them Love Where You Live events. If you're anywhere in the Chicago suburbs, by the way, and you want to participate in one, you can go to communitychristian.org slash L-W-Y-L, Love Where You Live. Yeah, that's right. I always have to think so hard about that one. But uh, yeah, we're, we're doing them at a number of different locations of ours in parking lots, socially distanced with masks. It's more of a, yep. it's a singing and prayer event, and uh, we're already planning to do the next one at the L Box in September. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do a couple more of these. It was really, I mean, you know what it was like the first time you were back together in person, like it felt emotional. It was, it it just felt great to be singing to even in a big old parking lot. That was, that was a real blessing. I loved it. Yep. So as you said, our church has started meeting and we're getting, it's getting, this was the third week and we have 50 people and with masks and you're getting used to it in a weird way. The first yeah. week it was really weird and now you're getting used to it, but we're also doing a monthly, like you just, like you guys are trying to do a monthly, let's just get together outside and sing and be together and do what we can. Uh, so yeah, that picture was cool that she took uh, uh, at your church. It looked, uh, looked like a lot of fun. Um, speaking of meeting, here's a good segue. One of the guys at the front forefront of should churches be meeting is Reverend John MacArthur out in California. He's been, uh, real in, to the point of fighting this in the courts. And John MacArthur gave a seven-minute-long interview this week, uh, this weekend, that I want to play the whole thing. I want to play the entire thing. We don't normally do clips this long. Uh, and then we're going to carry it over to the next segment, and E and I are going to discuss what we heard, all right? So here is John MacArthur. The pastor has uh, the president reached out. Has he responded? Have you had a conversation with him? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, he called me after the Sunday morning service, and uh, he was very gracious and said, um, I just want to thank you for taking a stand. Church is essential, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And then we talked a little bit about why, from certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. Because there's no way that a Christian can affirm the slaughter of babies, Mm. homosexual activity, homosexual marriage, or any kind of gross immorality. No way we could, you know, stand behind a candidate who was affirming transgender behavior, which, of course, is really the reprobate mind of Romans 1. 
So I, I said, these things aren't even political for us, uh, sir. I said, these things are biblical. These things are laid down by, by the Word of God. And we love God. We desire to honor Him. And upholding righteousness in a society is what a church is supposed to do. So I said, any real, true believer is going to be on your side in this election because it's not just an individual. It's an entire set of policies that Christians cannot in any way affirm. You know, Pastor, I'm so thankful that you mentioned that uh, from a biblical, convictional standpoint. We, as you know, we have, there are critics within evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, who would like to suggest that the Bible has no prescribed political system, the Bible has no prescribed economic order or system of things, and that that all of this voting and whatnot falls under the category of Christian liberty. Literally, I I know of and I can think of off the top of my head certain groups within um, mainstream conservative, put that in in quotations, but evangelicalism that would want to allow for liberty to dominate in that area and say, well, you know, Christians can vote, pull the lever for a Democrat, Christians can pull a Democrat for uh, uh, the lever for a Republican. And at the end of the day, single issue, one issue voting or whatever else you put in that category should not dominate uh, the Christian ethic. How would you respond to that? Yeah, that sounds like 25 or 30 years ago Mm. when the differences were sociological or economic between, you know, ownership and and labor. That that is long gone. Uh, Look, let me give you a framework uh, in the way that I think of it. Um, We have a we have a world full of fallen people. Um, you have to restrain these fallen people. God knows that. And God basically put into place four restraints. The first restraint is individual. It's the law of God written in the heart. Uh, Romans 2, it's either accusing or excusing. So God has a mechanism in every human being. It's part of being human that triggers guilt when you do something against the law of God written in the heart. Now, this society has literally assaulted the conscience. This society says you should never think badly of yourself. No matter what you do, you're who you are. This is who you are. You ought to be proud of who you are. And the the law that now reigns in our society is an upside-down version of God's law written in the heart. So basically, you create a new immorality and call it morality. You slaughter the conscience. So the individual restraint is gone We even talk about unconscionable things. The second restraint that God built is the family. And that restraint works through parents who raise their children with discipline and virtue. That is completely devastated. And what you're seeing running loose in the streets are kids who were raised without a family and if in a family without family providing any discipline or any consequences for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So the family has been devastated. The third thing God ordained is government, and that's the police that carry the sword to punish evildoers and protect those who do good. And you're seeing that completely assaulted and attacked. The the fourth and the most effective, because it has eternal truth tied to it, is the church. So I'm not at all surprised that you have an assault on the conscience by the Democratic Party 
where homosexuality, immorality at any kind of level, transgenderism is fine, acceptable behavior, and we ought to make laws to normalize it. I'm not at all surprised that the family is destroyed through divorce and uh, abortion, which is the destruction of the, the very reason for marriage. I'm not surprised that they're screaming to defund the police because that's the next restraint to go. And I, I was just waiting for when they were going to hit the church. Mm. So if that's the Democratic platform, then it is an all-out, massive, comprehensive assault on God mm. and on what God has placed in the world to protect people, to allow for civilization to flourish so that the, that he can be honored in that civilization because they see him through the law in the heart, through the family, passing righteousness from one generation to the next, through law and order, and through the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, salt and light in the world. It doesn't surprise me that every one of these institutions has been, is being completely assaulted and attacked. Mm -hmm. And since the Democratic Party has that attack and assault as their platform, I mean, just think of this. Joe Biden said the other day, he's going to make sure he fills his cabinet with Muslims. That is, that is as anti-Christian a statement as you could possibly make. That is a blasphemy of the true and living God. So none of this surprises me, but this is not some random thing. You can see this is systematically assaulting all the things that God has placed in the world for humanity to flourish. Yeah. No, no thinking person, no person who wanted any kind of life for anyone in the future could possibly affirm that kind of behavior. And one of the core tenets, and you ref, uh, reference uh, Islam, the core tenets in Sharia law, I mean, it's, it's diametrically antithetical, uh, diametrically opposed, antithetical in every way to the U.S. Constitution uh, in terms of freedom and the liberties and liberalities that, uh, that we would enjoy. All right, Ian, I'm sure you've got a lot of thoughts on that, but I need you to hold them. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to our break here. And when we come back, Ian and I are going to reflect on all that John MacArthur had to say as he continues to fight uh, in the courts and continues to say that churches should be meeting right now uh, without masks. And also he waded into a lot of politics in there. So we're going to talk about that next. Ian and I are going to discuss John MacArthur's interview next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian. Oh, oh that's three straight alongsides I've done. I'm going to have next segment. We're going with something else. Uh, but we are glad that you're joining us today. And before uh, our last break, what we did was we listened uh, to a long kind of seven minute interview that Pastor John MacArthur gave this past weekend. As a reminder, those of you who aren't familiar, John MacArthur has been at the front of the line of it's essential the churches be meeting right now. We're going to meet thousands of people in his California church. Uh, no masks, no social distancing. We're going to fight this and we're going to go. And uh, John MacArthur has been doing that. And he's gotten a lot of, I'm not saying he's doing it for this, but gotten a lot of publicity and notoriety through this. So we listened to kind of a wide ranging interview. If you missed it, go back to our podcast and you can get it there. But Ian, I'm wondering uh, that's kind of the most we've heard from John MacArthur over here in the last couple of weeks. And I'm wondering your just kind of initial reaction to what MacArthur had to say there. Well, I actually had just discovered a post a couple minutes before we started here by a guy named Alan Noble. I want to read a little bit of what he wrote because I thought Love it was it. I thought it was pretty pointed. 
He said, I'm going to be very clear and gracious about this, but in this video, John MacArthur makes unbiblical and shameful claims about politics and the Christian faith. John MacArthur said, any real true believer will be on your, meaning Trump's side, in this election. This president has been horrific for our country, a disgrace to conservatism, damaging to the witness and health of the church and corrosive to democracy. But if you are a Christian and vote for him in 2020, you are still my brother or sister in Christ, period. I would implore you not to, but your vote does not determine whether or not you are a real true believer. And it is shameful for any pastor to say otherwise. And the same is true for voting for Biden, which I don't intend to do. It may be that your vote is sinful. That's always possible. Many people vote for a candidate out of hatred or greed or spite, which is sin. But even mm. if you vote for sinful reasons, God has grace for you, and I will have grace for you as well. Real, true believers sin and make foolish decisions because sometimes, and thank God in heaven, he has grace and mercy for us. That doesn't mean I'm not going to challenge your views or pray for you to make better choices. That doesn't mean the consequences of voting aren't serious. That doesn't mean that politics don't matter, but it does mean that I'm not going to question your faith. And I would hope that no Christians would promote the false teaching that uh, that no, quote, real true believers would oppose Trump. It is a lie. Notably, you won't see any similarly prominent conservative evangelical leaders claim that, quote, uh, real true believers will support Biden because if they tried, they would get canceled. So I thought that was an interesting take in particular. And, you know, again, these were his words, not mine. But there, the piece where he's even talking about, like, the sinful motivation sometimes behind our voting. He's like, yeah, that's the thing that happens. And I've never really considered that particular take on it. He's like, all of that could happen. You're still my brother or sister in faith, though. Like, and I, I, I appreciate, I think, kind of his forthright condemnation of assuming that who someone does or doesn't vote for is somehow determinant of whether or not that person knows Jesus. That, right. that for me is where it starts to get really problematic. And again, you know, MacArthur believes this strongly. And so there was a part of me that admires when anyone feels strongly about anything, just simply for the, you know, the passion of it. Like, okay, you feel very convicted by this. I start to get really uneasy. And then other emotions when I hear pastors tell other people via, you know, a news report, that they are or aren't Christians if they disagree politically with them. That, to me, is problematic in all sorts of ways. And where do you think that's coming from? Because I'm, that was the first thing that struck out to me, because you and I did an article last week, uh, Robert Jeffers, basically saying you sold your soul to the devil if you vote for a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, and now John MacArthur, who, to my knowledge, has never really been out there politically until this thing all started, saying that uh, basically you're not a Christian if you vote for a Democrat, if you don't vote for Donald Trump. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I just have missed this, but I feel like this is a new phenomenon where it's pastors calling into question, prominent pastors calling into question uh, the very salvation and the very faith of people who would dare vote a different way. And they're usually, it's usually coupled with abortion, but MacArthur couples it with lots of other stuff. Jeffers with other stuff. What do you, this is a really hard question, but what do you think's even behind that? What do you think's behind the, 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 the step? Because that's a huge step to take that says, hey, not only do I disagree with you politically, I question whether you could even be a Christian anymore. Man, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a good answer to it. I think that, uh, Part of what you and I have noticed even in the last year and a half of doing this show is that it feels like headlines have to be more and more sensational in order to get clicks and traffic. And it feels like that trend has continued both in our politics, but unfortunately, probably also in 
various expressions of religion. I don't think this is true for every faith system or faith group, but it does seem like the language has to almost in their mind be justifiably more and more intense or more and more inflammatory in order to cut through the noise. These certainly aren't the first people. I mean, again, I don't want to necessarily put the two in the same camp, but like Westboro Baptist church has been saying awful things in the name of Jesus for a long time. And there's plenty of churches and preachers and pastors before them. So I don't think it's actually a brand new phenomenon. I think our platforms are bigger. We're more connected at least digitally than we ever have been. So some of these things, carry a lot faster or a lot farther, which is probably worth considering. But I don't know. I also think, and David French has done a, a good a good amount of work on on helping us better understand like why we get so ingrained in our political ideology with our religious identity and maybe even just our personhood. When those things all start to intermingle, it can become, I think, increasingly psychologically difficult to untangle them from themselves. So if you insult my politics or, or or worse yet, you know, disagree with my politics. Well, now I have to kind of go after you because for a lot of us, it feels like you're going after my per- my personhood, not just my right. my party affiliation. I think I think that's part of what's at the heart of it. And the other problematic thing to what for me for what MacArthur said here was his, and he ended up some people fact checked. He ended up having his facts a little bit wrong here. But when he when he went in on Biden wanting to have Muslims in his cabinet and this being a blatant attack on Christianity, I found to be a really odd, yeah, um, yeah a, a really odd take, because basically what you're saying is either you're saying, hey, Joe Biden, don't you know, we're a Christian nation. You should only have Christians in your cabinet or, hey, if you let a Muslim onto your cabinet, that's going to be open the door for some sort of Muslim takeover or Sharia law or whatever else. It just felt. I guess I was surprised to even hear MacArthur go there. I wouldn't have thought that that was his stance because I don't think any of us should be like, oh, my gosh, only Christians should be able to be in the cabinet. I I doubt President Trump only has Christians in his cabinet. Were you as surprised as I was that that's kind of a huge angle that MacArthur took there? I was was surprised and then less surprised the more I thought about it. But I I don't know. I mean – does MacArthur think this is a theocracy? Is that is that the goal? Is that the aim in his know. mind? I, I'm not all that surprised that he would be uh, – he would take a position, I guess, fearful towards Muslims. That certainly – I was I was with you 100% though. I heard that and I, I had to like hit pause. I was like, wait, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? That part was really frustrating to me because I think – well, honestly, I think of like Muslim friends of mine who heard things like that who – in some ways, maybe are bridging the gap. Like, hey, aren't you also a pastor, Ian? Like, are you in the same, the same sort of camp, the same sort of fear toward us? And that, to me, some of that was kind of personally mm-hmm. motivated. But uh, surprised at the very least, disappointed, and probably then some. Yeah, I guess for me, like if we're talking about a cabinet position, I first want to know that that's the best person for that job, regardless of, of right. their faith, regardless of what and. Uh, that seemed like a really odd attack. We really want to know what you have to think about this. These words from John MacArthur, especially this growing sentiment that if you vote Democrat, you're not a Christian. Uh, some of you out there, I'm fully aware there are many out there who are going, amen, that's true. And and just because we disagree with you, uh, you still believe it. We'd love to hear from you at the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, and hear, uh, hear what you have to say. That's John MacArthur. Give that a listen if you missed it, and we'd love your feedback. Well, coming up next from the Today Show, seven self-care tips for coping with COVID-19 crisis fatigue. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. 
Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined, as always, by Ian Simpkins. Uh, we are uh, glad to have you. Did you see, that was very intentional right there. I mean, I know it was very intentional. I'm just wondering what people who are dropping into the show right now think about that. <laughs> like, is Brian high right now? What's happening? <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of ups and downs on that intro. Where's the alongside? I need it. I need it. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure that's what people are thinking. I don't know who they are if it's not an alongside. Can I tell you, this is totally off subject of what we're about to talk about. But uh, this weekend, uh, I, I, I'm an assistant coach on my daughter's uh, sixth grade softball team. So it's really fun. Right. They're going to finally play to softball. Manner, right? What's that? You're assistant to the regional manager. Right? <laughs> yes. And so we had our first game yesterday and we lost, but it was totally fun. It was a lot of fun. But uh, our team had one hit and was walked 18 times. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, 100 degrees and not a, not a shaded place in the whole park. Oh, so man. it was uh, quite the thing, That's but we got another one tonight. We're going <laughs> to bounce. sounds like back. a dream. So it's one of those things where it's fun because it's your kid. But if not, you'd be like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> this right, is hard. right. Well, anyway, at the Today Show, I was watching the Today Show this morning, and they did this segment on uh, crisis fatigue around the oh. COVID-19 crisis. So they're going to give seven self-care tips for coping with crisis fatigue. But let me describe, let me read their description of crisis fatigue. Here we go. We're nearly six months into the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and the death toll continues to rise as the virus spreads. This information in itself is enough to send the human brain into panic mode. But a pandemic isn't our only problem. There's also additional ongoing stresses, fighting over the necessity of masks, political chaos, job loss, a strained healthcare system, civil unrest, a national reckoning with systemic racism, and the debate on whether to send uh, or not to send kids back to school. It's a lot to deal with, too much even. And in many cases, it's resulting in what mental health experts call crisis fatigue. Uh, I guess I would ask you this. Are, are you feeling or are you seeing around you this phenomenon of crisis fatigue? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I had uh, coffee with some some local pastors and dear friends this morning, and we were kind of even just burden sharing there a little bit, which, again, is something that used to happen a lot more regularly, which doesn't make the fatigue go away, but like sh just intentional sharing, especially with people in a similar field can be just so life-giving and we hadn't seen each other in a long, long time. So even just the opportunity to kind of share like, oh, good, I'm not crazy for feeling crushed by this or anxious about that. It was, it felt very normalizing. It was weird because you and I spent a lot of time on this show actually trying to encourage people, hey, it's okay if you're feeling this, right. you know, reach out, get the help. And then sometimes I think as leaders, we can forget that as well. And so it's amazing what a 90-minute cup of coffee can do for the soul and we just okay this doesn't make any of the problems go away but I, I feel uh i feel a lot more uh at peace i guess that like yeah. this is a normal kind of river everyone's swimming in right now yeah and you might be going i don't know if i'm feeling crisis fatigue well they go on to describe what are the signs and symptoms of crisis fatigue uh it says they may include insomnia oversleeping lethargy lethargy sorry depression anxiety irritability and trouble with making decisions she said, uh, this doctor said, if you feel like you can't focus or your energy levels are low or so low that it's hard to get motivated and manage everyday activities, if you feel sad or overwhelmed, these are all signs of crisis fatigue. I was talking to someone this weekend, too, about just how the new normal of working from home and all this stuff. It's like, you know, I, I just don't 
I, I find myself having a hard time getting motivated. And this, this other person, like, absolutely, like, we're both like working from home. It's just hard to get motivated. All of this, I think, is the stew. And so we're going to, they're going to give us here seven ways to cope. If that's you, if you're like, you know what, I'm feeling that. And I think all of us to some level, but some of us uh, much more strongly, they're going to give us seven ways to cope with crisis fatigue. Why don't you uh, start us off here? Yeah. And this, again, just to say it out loud again, this is from uh, USA Today. No, this is from Today, today Show. Yep. Today Show. Yeah, not USA. I knew Today was in it. And some, <laughs> somebody listening, we've talked about this before, like these aren't, you know, lifted from scripture yep. or from mystics, whatever. But I think they're just helpful, helpful tasks that all of us can apply. Number one, says cut out, cut out the negative coping skills. Negative coping skills are sneaky because they seem like quick and easy solutions, but they create bigger problems later. Alcohol, drug use, overspending money and casual sex all seem like good ideas until the negative consequences come. Number two, stick to a routine. Find a new routine and stick to it as much as possible, said Alexandra Finkel, a licensed clinical social worker. Routine and predictability are a powerful antidote to crisis because they cre create stability. Think about small ways you can create routines, like eating breakfast at the same time every day, designating specific working hours and days, watching a television show with your family. I think that's so good. I think that's what me and that other guy were talking about. We've lost our routine. So stick to a routine. Yeah, I've been going on evening walks with my boys, and it is like my new favorite habit that yeah. we've established. It kind of happened accidentally. Like, you know, I, my 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 wife was feeling stressed. They had been particularly rough that day. And I was like, let me take them for a walk. And I and I loved it. And I was like, I could just do this at the end of every workday. She mm. was like, I'm not going to stop you. Go for it. Just go right <laughs> ahead. <laughs> That's been really helpful. Yeah. Uh, number three, pay attention to the story you're telling yourself. It is a uniquely human tendency to maintain a, quote, story that we tell ourselves and others about who we are and what our life is like, said Ryland. I think this is a doctor mentioned earlier in the article. Mm -hmm. Some people are very good at finding the positives in life and cultivating gratitude. Others may discover feeling stuck in a negative narrative increases feelings of hopelessness. Keeping a daily gratitude journal, we've talked about this before, listening mm -hmm. to motivational videos or sermons and journaling can be used to shift our story to a hopeful and more positive one. Yep. Number four, practice mindfulness. A consistent mindfulness practice has been shown to improve the ability to cope with stress and dampen the uh, physiological elevations associated with crisis fatigue. If you have never practiced mindfulness before, it can be helpful to read a book such as Mindfulness for Beginners, even a or brief the Bible. Daily, or the, exactly. <laughs> it is funny how they cross over, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, even a very brief daily practice can be very helpful. Totally agree. Number five, schedule self-care. As a preventative measure, here's one that I'm not great at. The essence of self-care is to understand your own needs and give care to yourself before you are depleted. Think about what helps you feel good, what helps you recharge when your battery is running low. Schedule that time uh, schedule that time in for yourself, even if it's five minutes a day, to watch something that makes you laugh or have mm -hmm. a moment to yourself. When we do like the Together Conference, one of the ways that we talk about it is um, – some of you, some of your marriages might be like in crisis mode and you need like professional help, but all of us, all of our cars need regular oil changes. That's just That's good right. maintenance. And so what if you just got ahead of some of these things and like maintained a healthy marriage, even if you're not in crisis mode, I think this is the same kind of principle. That's right. Number six is let yourself grieve. There's enormous loss that comes with crisis as crisis causes abrupt and profound change. Loss always brings grief and there's so much to grieve. The life you had before the pandemic, future plans you had made, important milestones that have been canceled or postponed, jobs, loved ones, safety, security, independence, work-life balance. The list is endless. Grief is normal and it's needed. 
Avoiding grief means avoiding acceptance. Mm. Nurture your feelings by offering yourself compassion and validation. Try using affirmations and simple mantra- mantras to help yourself learn to sit with uncomfortable emotions. And the last right. one that you're going to have is the one you talked about at the beginning of this segment. That's right. Number seven, pull in your support system. Part of crisis fatigue involves pushing away our loved ones due to irritability and frustration. But this only makes stress higher in the long term. Start by explaining to them your experience and work to arrive at effective plans through teamwork and communication. Therapy can also be a helpful way to get additional support. Again, I know I said this at the beginning. It's not a particularly Christian article, but I think there's a lot of Christian principles within that that could be helpful for a lot of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can find that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And, you know, if you're suffering right now with a little bit or a lot of it of crisis fatigue uh, and just the struggle of all that's going on with this pandemic and all that's going on in our culture, uh, give that a read. And uh, hopefully you can find some help there. And as always, you can always message us. Ian and I, uh, we are mm-hmm. pastors, pastors at heart. We would love to help anybody in any way that we can. That's right. And so you can find us on our Facebook page. Well, the first hours in the books coming up next, we are going to discuss in a disturbing story that I was following this weekend of a well-known political family. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some family drama out of the White House, the power of apology, and then is God calling us to true joy? You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us this second hour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You can find us on Facebook. Ian is thankful. He is just thankful that so you joined thankful. us. You can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Lots of uh, lots of emotion on the Facebook page today. Uh, would love to have you weigh in. You what can was, find that there. What does that mean? Well, there's 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 some uh, there's some emotion in in the discussions, especially around the uh, shooting in Wisconsin. Lots of not sad emotions, just uh, passion. Maybe passion was the right word. So. Uh, you can find us online, 1160hope.com, and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful for those of you who do that. So did you follow this story, Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, out of the White House this weekend? Uh, just a little bit. Let me let me give everybody, if you're not familiar with it, let me give everybody just a little bit of background. It says White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway, who, if you don't know her by name, you would know her. Uh, if you at all follow politics at all, she's she's regularly um, not just a senior advisor, but a but a, a mouthpiece out there on the cable news channels and other places for the president. So Kellyanne Conway will leave her post at the end of the month while her husband, George Conway. Uh, interestingly, her husband is one of the single most vocal, outspoken conservative critics of the president. He is part of the Lincoln Project. Uh, they are both stepping away from their roles. Uh, citing a need to focus on their family. She said in a statement, I'll be transitioning from the White House at the end of the month. George is also making changes. We disagree about plenty, but we are united on what matters most, the kids. Our four children are teens and tweens starting a new academic year in middle school and high school remotely from home for at least a few months. As millions of parents nationwide know, kids doing school from home requires a level of attention and vigilance that is as unusual as these times. And so that sounds really nice, but 
If you followed the story at all this weekend, you would know that their daughter, Claudia, I believe is her name, uh, in a really uncomfortable way, uh, really exposed some family laundry. Let's dirty laundry in, in the, over Twitter and TikTok this weekend and basically ended her rant by saying that her mom has ruined their family. Her and her dad can't agree on anything that the second her mom took that job, it ruined their, their relationship and the family. And she went on to say that this is going to be very public, but that she, as a 15-year-old, is wanting to be emancipated, so no longer be under her parents. And, uh, ah, man, I I don't know why I watched a lot about this story, but I found it so, so, so heartbreaking. And I think it's because I have a 16-year-old daughter. Yeah. Uh, But even if you don't, I think it was heartbreaking to see the pain of a daughter, but also a daughter who seemed to be like, uh, searching for validation online from people on TikTok and Twitter. It had a, it had like, a, um, you know, kind of a social media influencer feel to it, you know, people yeah. uh, writing back and forth. But to see this family, and you've always wondered about this family, that they're so different politically, so vocal, uh, and the kids basically go, and things are really bad at home because of it. Uh, and now the parents are stepping away. Uh, I have so many emotions around this one as I read it, but, but all one, the biggest one I felt was just, just sadness over it. Yeah. I mean, it's a sad story. Anytime a kid feels so unhappy and so disconnected that they want to emancipate. I don't know that. I remember a whole lot of cases where that's, that's actually happened. I wonder, it'd be interesting to know how many times children have filed for an emancipation from their parents. I bet you that number would surprise us, but it is also Again, and I don't know how you feel about this household or any of the individuals, but there is something to be said of the uh, the willingness to say, you know what, we're stepping back then because family's first. Like mm-hmm. we just we got to prioritize. Like I think of that that uh, Craig Rochelle story that I know he told a couple of times when they were first yeah. planting the church, and he was tucking in his daughter, and she said uh, something like, "Are you going to go home now, Daddy?" And he's like, "What do you What do you mean? I am home." And she said, "Oh, I thought I thought the church was your home." And like something about having your like, you know, four year old daughter mm-hmm. in all earnestness say, oh, I, my bad. I, th- I thought you lived over there because you're there all the time. It's obviously yep. a completely different kind of story. But just he's, he talks about that being like a turning point moment for him when he realized, yeah, I, I, I need to prioritize my family in a way that I, I haven't been. But it, this story feels a lot messier than that. Yeah, there, I, I appreciated a lot of people on Twitter that I saw going, no matter what you think of them, uh this is a time to support and pray and, and, you know, some people just send out good thoughts, whatever else it might be. But it got me thinking about a lot of things. One, just sadness. I watched this girl and it was such a cry for um, attention. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. It almost felt like attention that she has been lacking from her parents. I don't know that, but uh, it felt like that kind of um, kind of uh, lashing out in a way, but also just, you know, man, I, I think especially pastors have a um, have a reputation throughout the years of being willing or all too often neglecting their family. And and so before casting stones, like going, oh, this family, what a train wreck. How could you just work your jobs and, and ignore your family or whatever else and not see this coming? This is a danger for pastors, right? For businessmen, yeah. for teachers, yeah. for anybody right now, I guess. How I, I guess I want to make this a little more personal and ask your kids are really young. Your marriage is still relatively young. How do you even think through these things to go? I, I can't ever see myself getting to that point, but they probably never saw themselves getting to this point. How do you what are some safeguards that you try to use to protect yourself? 
I think even before safeguards, you need to build in a level of like universal clarity and permission to speak into the lives of the other. Like I've been so appreciative of a wife who really does value quality time. You know, we talk about the five love languages. Quality time is really high on her list. And it's not that I don't like quality time, but it's just not as high on my list at all. Like my brain doesn't naturally kind of pick up on some of those things. So like when a friend historically be like, hey, man, I feel really undervalued by you because we haven't spent time together in a year. In my mind, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, but we we text still. And they're like, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't do it for me. You know, like picking up on some of those things. So first, I think it has to be just an agreement, especially if if you're married to to always have permission to give permission to, hey, if you if you see me like heading for a cliff here, I need you to speak into my life. and I'm going to invite you into and I'm going to promise not to be defensive. That's another thing that I'm. I'm still really working on like sometimes some of those things can feel very hurtful. And if you just jump to being defensive about it, well, you're not going to get any better. at it. You're not going to grow. So that that has to be kind of the bedrock. Like you need to have a, a vocal understanding of like trust, which requires a lot of relational equity. But there's a bunch of other things I think you can just build in in terms of like Sabbath rhythms and when the computer is off and where phones are allowed. And like, you know, for me, Friday and Saturdays are days off. We try to like make adventures of it as best we can, even in a pandemic. So the willingness to sometimes do the hard thing, like ah, I'd rather just sit here and watch TV, but like for the sake of, yeah, let's continue to kind of safeguard and prioritize our family. Let's go, let's go do something that's a little more, uh, a yeah. little more exhausting perhaps, but probably worth it in the long end. Do you, do you have things that you go to that are helpful for you guys? Yeah. I, you've brought up some good ones. I think some other ones for me is, uh, it's this idea a long time ago i had to think to myself not everything good is worth saying yes to if it takes right. me away from my family right. like even seeing friends all the time or certain church activities or whatever else it might be so not everything's good uh, talking it through with your spouse i think is a great one you, you and i have joked about how i'm a big vacation guy and uh one of the reasons for that is because that kind of intense family time for us is like worth months of just the day in and day out. And so, you know, if you're out there and you're not using at least some of your vacation time in a year, I think you just have to ask why I get work can get busy and stuff like that. But, you know, how can you get that in? And then I suppose just asking your kids, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. how are we doing? Mm -hmm. Because that whole good thing, right? Like Kellyanne Conway, this was probably one of her, that's probably a dream job. George Conway feels really strongly about defeating President Trump. Um, But, it seems like, and we're praying that it's not permanent, but it seems like they may have lost their family along the way. And, uh, and so hopefully none of us ever get to that point. Anyway, it's a cautionary tale. Be praying for them. Hopefully this break will allow for there to be some healing and some mending, but it should cause us to look in the mirror and ask all of ourselves some hard questions. Well, coming up next, uh, a fascinating weekend of basketball. And I want to point out one specific moment that happened. We want to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. Oh, can you hear my dog? Can you hear the dog barking right sure now? Sure can, Brian Fromm. That is Pippa, my my little uh, nine pound dog that uh, thinks it could take on the world, barking away. Pippa must uh, just be excited that it's National Waffle Day. Maybe that's oh, is maybe it that's, really? It sure is. It's also National Maryland Day and National Peach Pie Day. Hold on, National Maryland, like the state? I don't know what other Maryland you could be referencing. That's a very random day. Let me ask you this: 
on National Waffle Day. Sure. If I gave you a choice between if you were out for breakfast and you had to choose between waffles, pancakes or French toast, put them in order one to three. What would you choose? Well, Brian, I mean, waffles are just pancakes that got their life together. That's all it is. (laughs) Um, It's going to be it's going to be a tie between waffles and French toast pancakes. Although a good pancake now and again, my, we got some from my my kids a couple of days ago when we were on a walk, and uh, I ate most of them. I'm not going to lie to you. So you and I sometimes we are we are not the same, but sometimes we're the same. I would definitely go uh, French toast, waffle, and pancake is going to be a little bit further down for me. So now, doesn't mean you, the pancake have, is bad, as you said. But have you ever put a uh, piece of French toast into a waffle iron? I have not. How it does that is, work out for you? It is delicious. <laughs> Five stars would recommend. I will give that a try someday. Will, uh, will you, or will this be like Alexa all over again? You know what? I have a lunch meeting. To, I mean, a breakfast meeting tomorrow outside socially distanced. And I think that I will get French toast, but I will ask them to put it in the waffle maker before they bring it out. <laughs> <laughs> Please record that encounter. I'd love to know how that goes. We were talking last segment about, about breakfast, about vacations. And one of the things my kids love is staying in a hotel and having a hotel that has the breakfast in the lobby. And every time you go to a hotel with a, a lobby breakfast, they always have that make your own waffle waffle mm-hmm. maker. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the highlight of the vacation for my children. Normally, it's like waffle maker. Let's go. <laughs> you know, you can buy those things for like eight bucks. Right, Brian? Uh, even where you have to make like where you get your own uh, the batter. Yeah. OK, that could be a good birthday gift for my children. <laughs> Although then it wouldn't be like vacation anymore. So that's true. Yeah. Touche. Never mind. Now it'll just be us telling them, go make your own breakfast. <laughs> right. now, now it's just a chore, right? Well, one of the fun things for this weekend for me, I know you said you didn't have much time to check it out this weekend, but was the basketball. It's, it's the playoffs going on in the bubble. It's really weird because basketball shouldn't be going on right now. Uh, but if you anyone saw the Dallas Mavericks LA Clippers, which is turning into the best series right now, uh, Luka Don- Doncic, a 21-year-old superstar, had a triple-double yesterday on a tender ankle with 43 points and hit the game-winning three. It was one of those where my son and I were watching, Ian, and uh, when he made it, we literally just let out a scream. Like, you know when you're watching a sporting <laughs> event and you just scream? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> It was one of those moments, but Luka Doncic actually had a moment earlier in the series that I want to bring up because uh, I found it to be really interesting. So on the Clippers, let me give you the background. The Clippers have uh, a a power forward by the name of Montrez Harrell. He's a little bit of one of those guys on a team who's kind of an enforcer, right? A rebounder, not a big scorer. Uh, He'll kind of be kind of the tough guy. And Luka Doncic doesn't really back down. But one of the things the Clippers have been doing in the series is to try to be physical with Doncic, just to kind of, you know, he's coming around a screen, giving him elbow, that kind of stuff. And Doncic hasn't really backed down at all. Uh, and so in game three the other day, Doncic and, and Harold got into it. And uh, for the lip readers out there, uh, it was caught very clearly that Harold said to Doncic, uh, called him an expletive white boy. Uh, in the middle of game three. And so Twitter went crazy, as you can imagine. Cancel culture came out, all of this stuff from both sides of going, oh, it's it's the heat of the moment versus like, how is this any better than anything else? He needs to be thrown out of, you know, this kind of stuff. Well, then the camera never heard from Doncic, never heard from Harold. Before game four, 
there was this sweet moment on the court where they didn't know they didn't do it for the cameras. They didn't call a press conference where Harold, you could see him wave Doncic over and he whispered what had what we found out later was a heartfelt apology. And then they shook hands and they hugged and they uh, they went back to their respective benches. And after the game, they just said, yeah, everything's fine. He apologized. All is well. I mean, we've spoken about cancel culture so much, and and sometimes it's warranted, sometimes it's not. It was, I don't even know what else to say, except I really enjoyed seeing uh, just an apology, and we're good, and moving on, even if something inappropriate had been done. I just really enjoyed the moment. I didn't know if you had seen it at all, but... Uh, it is good just to see people apologize to each other and be able to move on again, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't see it live. I saw you put it in the rundown, so I figured, okay, I should uh, I should give this a gander. And I had the same kind of feeling. It's nothing hard-hitting necessarily, especially in light of some other stories that we're covering. But there is something, there is something to be said about uh, the witness of apology. And again, you know, if you, if you want to get really cynical – you could say, well, may- maybe he only offered it because his initial remark was like blowing up online and he was catching right. some heat or whatever. Like that's that's all certainly possible for sure. Um, but I'm trying to think even even in my own life, some of the most powerful moments in ministry, not only are when someone's like apologized to me, but when like I've swallowed my own pride, said, you know what? Right. No excuses. I, I shouldn't have said that. Or I should have done that. And then being met with like, receptiveness and forgiveness and it's like you can i don't know if you ever had this experience where you like go into a conversation and you can just feel all the tension in your shoulders and you're like oh and you're like grinding your teeth and the person just responds with grace and like you like your posture literally changes you're like oh that there's like there's something freeing about that and i i don't know it makes me wonder why we do it so little like what (laughs) like why is this even a story well it is a story because it's so rare for us to see this kind of, you know, reconciliation, this kind of apology, which bums me out because I feel like, gosh, it would be a more peaceful world if we could all just sort of embrace that, don't you think? Yeah, and I guess I, you, you just brought up the question that I want to spend the rest of our time with in this segment is, why don't we apologize? Why are we culture? It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. You might be out there being like, I just apologize. I think culturally, kind of the norm is to make excuses and try to push off rather than apologize. But you just did a great job saying, here's the benefits of apologizing. Oftentimes you get the grace you're hoping to get, even though it can be hard. Uh, What stops us? Why do you think uh, culturally we don't necessarily apologize, but maybe more personally, what stops us from saying sorry when we've messed up? What stops us from being able just to go, Hey, I messed up. No excuses. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a great question. One, I mean, the simple answer I think is pride. Uh, I think, to apologize, to, to admit, I think, especially too, like you mentioned cancel culture at the beginning, I feel like in some contexts we've made it so unsafe for people to change their mind or to have made a mistake and then, you know, to have to do right by it. I think sometimes, and we see this in law a lot, they're like, nope, don't, don't apologize because that's in any way admitting that you somehow made a mistake, which makes you a liability really. And I think we've carried that into a lot of our social context where, you know, if I just dig my heels in and um, if I just gaslight them and make them really think that's not actually what I said, or I never really did that, or I didn't intend for that. Maybe I can still win this thing. And that's, that's probably what it comes down to. I think pride. And then maybe the second thing is, well, I'm, it feels like losing. It feels like losing if I apologize. Mm. And I, I mean, I can certainly commiserate. I just, it's just not true though. <laughs> and I don't, yeah. I don't think, 
It is. I mean, it is. Uh, you're putting yourself at the mercy of another person to not forgive you, right? That's vulnerable. That can be scary mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean, you know, saying you're sorry obviously doesn't mean that you're an evil person or that you can't ever do better in the future. I just think we somehow conflate apology with like 10 other things that probably isn't all that helpful. Yeah, it's so true because, and how many times have we seen in our own lives or on the greater, grander stage of culture? Uh, where it's always the cover up or like the, the lack of remorse that ends up being worse than the initial incident where yeah. you're just like, we want to embrace you. We want to accept your apology. Uh, but then when I throw stones at people, I realize I'm not that quick to apologize, whether it be right. uh, something big or whether it be to my wife or to my children. I like to say, well, no, you misinterpreted or this is what I meant or uh-huh. this, that, right. this why it wasn't a big deal. Instead of just saying, hey, I screwed up. I'm sorry. And then every time I do that to my wife, to my kids, where I do apologize, I, the grace that it gets shown and, the, and then the healing in the relationship is just wonderful. And so uh, I thought this was an interesting example of this on a grander scale, but then hopefully gets you all out there thinking uh, about your own lives. And are you willing to say sorry when uh, when you should be apologizing? Well, coming up next, a well-known pastor, Levi Lusco, uh, talks about God calling us to true joy. We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there is a pastor by the name of Levi Lusco at a multi-site church in Montana and Utah called Fresh Life Church. Uh, and at the Christian Post, uh, they quote him as saying this, God is calling us to true joy. Levi Lusco on COVID-19, racism, and church reopening. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about what Levi Lusco had to say? I would love to. Here is how the article begins by Leah Klett. It says, in a year defined by racial tension and pandemic hysteria, Pastor Levi Lusco believes God is calling his people to abandon their idols and experience true joy. Lusco, lead pastor of Fresh Life Church, a multi-site church in Montana and Utah, told the Christian Post that he, like millions of other Americans, has found 2020 to be, quote, incredibly difficult. I would totally agree. But amid the pain, anxiety, and uncertainty, Lusco, who recently released his latest book, Take Back Your Life, a 40-day interactive journey, to thinking right so you can live right, believes God is calling his people to true joy. Quote, God is calling us to try joy. Uh, I believe that's the predominant thing he's trying to stir in our hearts this year, he said. And in the very early days of March, April, and May, I felt God really calling me to true joy. Sometimes we have to have those counterfeit sources of joy stripped away from us in order to experience true joy. Lesko admitted that his biggest go-to idol is control. But I'm out of control, he said. None of us can control this pandemic. By having that idol torn from my heart, I feel like God has been calling me to true joy in him and in seeking his face. The pastor pointed to the example of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who learned to trust God in obscurity and isolation. Quote, Elijah had to remove himself from the busyness to hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit, he said. It took him getting away to work through depression and issues that were clearly in his heart. He thought he was the only one struggling. He had kind of a victim mentality. He needed God to work on him. But when he heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him in the cave, he knew what he needed to do. I think that's a pretty good premise. I would probably even go a step further. That I don't necessarily think it was control that was stripped from him or any of us, but probably more the illusion of control. If I'm being really honest, I think a whole lot more of what's being stripped from us is not that you know we had all this control and now we don't have it, but this this illusion that we were as in control as we thought we were. I think that's part of what people are finding so jarring. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, centering it around idols here, the idol of, like you said, the perception of control, but even the idols of money and our jobs or uh, everything else that, that, that we seem to have held up, that, 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 that the COVID-19 pandemic has taken away from us. But I think you, you make a good point there. Kind of we, we've always felt like we've had everything. I've always felt like I've had everything figured out, know exactly how things are going to go, right? It's now the last week or late August. My kids should be going back to school right now. But they are not right. We right. it's Sunday morning. We're supposed to fill the fill the sanctuary, and we're all there until we can't. And uh, this kind of per- thinking that we had everything under control, and then we don't, uh, I think is is a val is a good point. Is a good point. What do you think about his overall point about just uh, true joy and how he even defines true joy? Yeah, I think joy is such a tricky one because there's a lot of different definitions of what joy looks like. I've always been like drawn to the book of Philippians where Paul, you know, it's it's a, essentially arguably a letter about joy written by a guy who's in prison or house arrest at the least chained to a wall or a soldier. So not a necessarily joyful environment. So to mm-hmm. me, at the very least, if I pick that apart, okay, so joy isn't based solely or even predominantly on my circumstances. Okay, well, that's an interesting starting point because – we're in a you know a very weird season where a lot of people, and we were just talking earlier in the show, I think in the first hour, that yeah, a lot of people are struggling with all sorts of new levels of fatigue and depression and anxiety. That doesn't feel joyful at all. It doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to those things, but I think the kind of joy that he's talking about, that I believe that God is calling us to, is is deeper. Its rootedness is more profound than just, I'm happy, I'm not happy, I'm happy again, mm-hmm. I'm not happy. That doesn't mean that we don't have like really down days. That's the dark underside of a lot of this. There's a lot of people were taught like, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my, you know, that means in their mind. Right, exactly. <laughs> and the, the assumption then, the subtext is, well, I can't ever have a bad day or I can't ever be discouraged at what's happening in my marriage or in the world. So the we got to be careful not to let joy become this like plastic joy. Where I'm like always, everything's mm-hmm. awesome. Everything's up and to the right. This is all, you know, the Lego universe. Uh, I think that that's, that's tough too, but to pursue joy, I, th- I think he's spot on. I think idols and not just like in a very obvious sense, you know, a lot of times when we talk about idols, we think pastors, when they riff on idols, they'll often talk about, you know, salary and house and car. Those seem to be more obvious idols. There's a lot of much more subtle idols that I think are, are probably even more so thieves of joy, like comparison, for example, <laughs> like, like uh, resentment, some of those things, even like our theological rightness, that can be an idol that we cling to more than Jesus that will rob us of, like, I think the the kind of joy that he's talking about. Yeah. And let me ask this. Uh, he talks about, and you and I have done so many articles about how difficult of a year this is, new normals, uh, things being stripped away, like all of this. This is not a new concept over the last five or six months of this pandemic. There will come a day. I'm not sure there'll ever come a day where everything's back to exactly how it was, but there's going to come a day where it's not like this, right? Right. And so hopefully, I guess I should preface that with hopefully there will come a day. Uh, assuming there is, how do you think, do you worry that we'll go back to those idols of comfort, of whatever fake joy he's discussing or if not, how do we not go back to where we were before? How do we take these lessons and actually make them part of our longstanding views and worldviews? Yeah, I think that it's interesting even how you ask that. I think it's got to be way more embodied than, than simply taking lessons and applying. I think for me, it, it always comes back down to formation. Like I think it's it has to be, how am I today becoming more and more like Christ? How am I allowing 
through the transforming of my mind, through the not conforming to the patterns of the world? How does my, how am I, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so this isn't just by my own grit and muster, by any, you know, Dallas Willard says, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So it's not something that we we earn, but it, it doesn't mean that we don't still put blood, sweat, and tears and sort of trying to listen to the voice of God and saying, God, okay, continue to weed these idols out of my heart because they were like stripped from my hands for this season. You know, when we look over our shoulder at, you know, 2020, the COVID years like that, that's going to be, mm-hmm. that's a really obvious example, but it doesn't mean that we still, we don't still need God to like continuously till the soil to uproot all of the things that are like tempted to take root in our hearts that become idols. And if it's not one thing, it could very well be another thing three years down the road, which is why, you know, when Paul talks about being a living sacrifice, we got to keep climbing back up off that altar. It's got to be more about, I think, decisions and rhythms than it is about like, oh, shoot, I need to apply these lessons that I learned all those years back then. Like it is a daily moment by moment surrender to be formed more and more into the image of Jesus, I think. Yeah. I, and you, you highlight there the intentionality it's going to require, because I do think there's going to be this natural gravitational pull to go, okay, now I can go back to being right. fully in control. Now everything's back in my control or this. Right. And uh, it's going to require us to be uh, not just intentional, but having those conversations within our communities and um, allowing the things that, that we have learned in this to to take root. I, I like your picture there of intentionality, of daily, <laughs> of daily intentionality. So let us know what you think about what Pastor Levi Lusco had to say here. And uh, we would love to hear more. You can find that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we are going to end the show with some good news. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this Monday afternoon. One of the ways that we have started ending our show, not every day, but often, uh, is from a website that you've uh, turned us on to called the Good News Network, goodnewsnetwork.org, that just gives uplifting stories. There's enough bad stuff out there in our world, in our media, that to just have some stories that are put a smile on your face or make you feel good about humanity is a great way to go. So we've got four stories here from the Good News Network. We're going to end with some good news. Ian, I'm going to let you choose whichever one you want to start with. I'd also like to say Happy Independence Day to Ukraine. And uh, happy, oh, happy, Father, party. happy Father's Day in South Sudan. I thought those were noteworthy holidays worth celebrating on our uh, our good news segment here. All right. So this is out of goodnewsnetwork.org. As you mentioned, here's the headline. Once I uh, close all the ads to honor his late father, <laughs> man learns to cook on YouTube. Now he owns a thriving restaurant. Love it. A man in South Carolina learned how to cook by watching YouTube videos. And now he's gone on to open a restaurant that has employed 60 people. Octavius Tay Nelson grew up washing dishes in restaurants where his father served as cook. He always saw the joy that his dad's food brought to so many people outside their family. After his father and brother passed away, Nelson wanted to honor their memory by engaging in that shared food, that shared passion for food. The problem, Nelson didn't know how to cook. Turning to YouTube, he watched endless how-to videos to gain kitchen skills. I watched every video I could find, Octavius tells GNN. In that way, he says, I learned everything from how to cook different types of meat to business-related tips on how to run a restaurant. At home in Fountain Inn, South Carolina, Nelson eventually launched a line of all-natural seasonings inspired by his father's recipes. But his ultimate dream was to open a restaurant, so he turned back to YouTube to search everything he needed to know 
about running a food business through using the skills he learned on YouTube. Nelson started a catering business. He finally made his dream of opening a restaurant come true in 2018. Bobby's Barbecue, named after his father and brother, has provided dozens of jobs for his community, and more than 35,000 people have come to taste his barbecue rubbed with the house-made seasonings. That's just some good stinking news. And I'm always amazed by people who just figure out how to do amazing things just by watching YouTube. I, yeah, have, friends who, I have a friend who just built an entire deck beautifully at his house. And I, when I was like, how do you know how to do that? He's like, oh, I just was watching YouTube. I just got the materials. I was like, what? <laughs> do you think that people like that just have like a natural proclivity yes. though, more, more than you yes. or me? Yes, completely. I talked to another guy who like fixed up a car. He's like, I just watched YouTube, but he already had that kind of background. Yeah, him, so. right, right. The next one here is first grader turns her dream of feeding homeless people into reality by launching her own foundation. Paris Williams is six years old. Like many of her first grade peers, she's adorable. But this little girl is also driven by a mission to help others who are less fortunate. So driven, in fact, that she launched her own nonprofit foundation called Paris Cares to feed the homeless in her area. Paris's mom, Alicia Marshall, says her daughter's inspiration became a hands-on Good Samaritan, uh, was the title character of Cherry Chadwick Deal's children's book, One Boy's Magic, who also uses his power to feed the homeless. She was reading books at school about giving, and she came home one day, and she was like, I want to give back to the homeless. What can we do to help the homeless? We kind of brainstormed some ideas, and we came up with making care packages. I wanted to give something to the homeless, Paris explained, like the boy in the book. Paris might not have had a magic wand, but she that didn't let that that didn't stop her turning instead to more practical magic and the help of her parents. Paris assembled and delivered via non-contact drop off more than 500 care packages containing food and other essentials to downtown St. Louis's homeless, as well as handing out approximately 250 meals to essential workers. But she wasn't satisfied to simply donate goods. It was important for her to forge a bond with the people she was serving. After filling each package herself, Paris drew a picture or wrote a personal message mm-hmm. on each one to create the kind of human connection so many of the homeless sorely lack. That girl's six years old. That's amazing. That's a hero right there. This next one, uh, this is kind of in the same vein, actually. Face Masked Batman is the superhero to the homeless, bringing food to them across Santiago. Before I get into this, have you seen the new trailer for the Batman movie? No, I heard that there was out there, but I've not seen it. No. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you gotta, you gotta go watch it. It's pretty dark. I feel like they've progressively gotten darker, yeah. but uh, yeah, I'll be curious to know what you think. Uh, the streets of Santiago, Chile, may be a long way from Gotham City, but among its citizens dwells a true superhero. Far from being a fictional crime solver, he's a real life hunger fighter who distributes food to the city's homeless population on a regular basis with his Batmobile, or in this case, white SUV. Fully stocked with the cargo of hot meals, he dons a shiny black costume complete with a cape and two masks, one with pointy comic book ears and eye slots, the other for COVID-19 protection. The self-proclaimed Solidarity Batman is doing his part to make life uh, to make life during Chile's months-long lockdown more bearable from some, uh, for some of the hardest hit by the current pandemic. But this Batman's do-good mission... Uh, is about more than simply delivering food, knowing that sometimes all it takes to nourish the soul is a little humor or a few kind words. He aims to feed people's hearts as he fills their stomachs. He chose the Batman outfit to cheer people up, and it fosters the feeling of togetherness. Look around you. See if you can dedicate a little time, a little food, a little shelter, a word sometimes of encouragement to those who need it, he told Reuters. And like Bruce Wayne, this modest cape crusader prefers to keep his identity 
anonymous. I love that for a bunch of reasons. Not the least of which, though, is that he's like, I listen, I'm not looking to like get clicks. I'm not looking to get publicity. I, for some reason, not for some reason, for probably obvious reasons, that's so refreshing in an age where like everyone's trying to get credit for everything they do all the time. I find that part to be uh, particularly refreshing. Absolutely. I love that anonymity of it. That's fun. And last one. Uh, you got to see the picture of this one. American girl has turned this Virginia hero into a doll. She said, I had no words. EMT mm. paramedics have always been frontline heroes every day, well before the pandemic hit neighborhoods across the world. And now this Virginia ambulance worker has an American doll made in her image to prove it. April O'Quinn was one of the five national winner- winners in the Heroes with Heart contest run by American Girl Dolls following a nationwide call for nominations. Of the thousands of nominations the Mattel company received, the one sent in by April's niece was chosen to represent the best of the COVID-19 COVID frontline heroes who've been risking their lives to help others. Young Lacey lives in Texas, and she's always telling people about her aunt, April, who works for the Richmond Ambulance Authority. Lacey told American Girl that her aunt contracted the coronavirus, but even after her long recovery, she chose to return uh, to the ambulance. She didn't hesitate for a moment, Lacey wrote in the contest submission. April got a phone call last month from Lacey with the exciting news. Lacey was on the other side screaming that we had won. I was in shock, April said. I had no words. I ended up crying because I couldn't say anything. She got to watch a video chat via video chat as the girl opened her new doll after it came in the mail and the likeness was pretty remarkable. And it goes on to say a bunch, but man, American girl dolls as one who's had a daughter has had daughters is a big deal. And this looks just like it. What a cool thing. American girl did there. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I want to go out on a limb and say, I know nothing about American girl dolls whatsoever. Is that a, is that a big deal? It is. Uh, it is not. And count yourself, uh, uh, they did a great thing here, but count yourself lucky for not knowing. <laughs> oh, okay. Duly noted. Lucky. Anyway, we are really glad that you joined us today. Lots of great content you can find on our Facebook page or on our podcast if you missed anything. And we're going to be with you again tomorrow from 4 until 6. Stay cool until then. And we hope that you join us. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.